Hello and welcome to the first edition of Mad, Bad and Downright Strange podcast where I will be inviting bloggers, filmmakers and fellow film junkies to help me work through the 1001 film introduction to cult and obscure cinema that is the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange list. Joining me for this premiere edition is the owner of the Deadly Dollhouse of Horror Nonsense as well as one half of the Feminine Critique podcast. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Stuart this evening, Emily. Hey, thank hey. you. Uh, well, first of all, thank you uh, for coming and joining me for this premiere edition. Not, not a problem. I wish you could have, you know, flown me over to uh, to your side of the world, but it, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's, uh, and you know, maybe in a future edition we can fly we can fly people over here. But uh, once the budget gets bigger and craft service improves. Yes. So, uh, well, for now, as I said, with the magic of internet, it it's uniting us all and. I said it's nice to actually finally be able to uh, do this because we've been sort of, of course, went back and forth on the blogs for, I think it's about five years now. Almost, I would say, because I think I'm coming up on my fifth year anniversary. I think. You get to the point where, like, time, I think once you get, like, past college, years don't matter anymore. So suddenly you look back and you're like, I've been doing this five years, and that's scary. But then it doesn't matter, so. I think this is the... uh, this thing, I remember looking at my amount of uh, posts I've done. It was like 395, and I'm thinking, have I really reviewed 395 movies since I started? Uh, yeah. But uh, it's still fun. I, I don't know about yourself. Are you still enjoying blogging? Or Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think the nature of it's changed a little bit, and I, and I have a theory for why, which I think, I don't know if you've noticed the same thing, there's a lot less commenting on blogs. Whereas when I started, there was, you know, almost every one of my, my reviews, I would get a post, you know, a comment here and there. Sometimes it'd go on, you'd have a conversation. There's a lot less of that, but I think a big part of that is that more and more people read stuff on their cell phone. Uh, it's much harder to actually comment on a cell phone, especially with certain uh, sites and everything else. So I think the readership, I think, is still there. I think people are still engaging and just not in the same... Uh, not not with as much work as they used to. I, I totally understand what you mean. It is a bit depressing at times when you put your time and effort into a piece and then you don't think anyone's mm-hmm. reading it because you don't get that sort of feedback. Right, right. Um, you can see, like, oh, okay, I had a lot of hits here, but why isn't anybody talking to me about it? That's the thing. You you see the hits going up and you're like, is this all spam? Is this right. people reading or people not knowing how to use Google correctly? Mm-hmm. But um, no, as I said, I don't know if it's the same for yourself, but do you feel that video uh, sort of bloggers have taken away from the written, more traditional written style blogging? Um, not specifically, because I think the audience for that is always going to be very separate. Uh, for me, like I, I like to read a lot of blogs because it's, for me, it's an enjoyable reading thing. Whereas when am I going to watch them if I'm like commute let's say if i'm on my commute and i have my phone up if i'm trying to watch a video it's going to be very tough because it's going to keep buffering uh you know if i'm at work and i'm you know on my lunch i can read a blog but i can't watch it because i don't really have video enabled there so i mean for and for me i'm you know i i like reading and i the blogs i read are ones that i respect and that are written well uh so I think, and I think it's a lot of the people who started blogging because they loved movies as opposed to because they loved writing about movies that a lot of times go into video, which is fine because I think if you're better at talking, then talk. That's fine because there's an audience for that. So I just, I think they're separate. 
I feel it's the, a lot of times with the video blog, bloggers, because they are so numerous, it's so hard to find the good video bloggers. Yeah. Um, a lot of the old guard, people like the Nostalgia Critic, Spoonie, uh, they've sort of, I don't know if they got caught up in their own hype, but they seem to have lost their way slightly, it feels to myself. Mm. Um, there's very few, I think Nostalgia Check is probably one of the few that is still sort of worth watching, but there's so many which is basically just some some guy or girl sitting there and reading IMDb in front of their webcam. <laughs> um, and you feel that it's kind of like a slap in the face when they're getting like 5,000 hits for them doing that and yeah, they're trying to think of something really to write down each time. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's harder because if you do that, then you have to either be really good at doing it spur of the moment naturally or else you've written it and are reading it and then have to be good at reading as if you're not actually reading. So I, I would that... much rather at that point read a review that somebody took the time to write and then edit and proofread and, you know. Yeah, you can normally tell the people who have got it on the board in front of them as you can follow their head moving along. Yep. Um, but one of the things I wanted, always like questioned for people who write genre-specific, I mean, in your case, it's a horror blog. Um, what is the appeal of obviously writing just purely about horror films? Uh, it started as I have always been a horror movie fan, and I have always been a writer of sorts. Uh, and like I think many people who write a lot when they're younger and go to college and write and you know decide they're going to come out of the world and write and then come out of the world and you know have a hard time finding a job where they write much. Uh, it became kind of a sort of way for me to like warm up again and get creatively writing uh so i started that about five years ago and actually now in my like real job i do write but it's very different from horror blogging um but there was that kind of sense of like you know i i'm ha not that i had writer's block i hate that term but that i knew i love writing i can write but i wasn't writing so and because anytime i kind of tried to write something i just kind of fizzled out so I figured, oh, wait a minute, here's something that I'm really passionate about. At that time, there was a lot of, um, I was listening to a lot of podcasts, and there was a couple of uh, forums that were big so that, you know, had these kind of, like, thriving movie communities. So I used to, you know, go to them a lot. And it just kind of became like a, I could, I could do this. You don't need too much technical savvy to watch a movie and, you know, post a simple review of it. Um, and I, it really helped me get writing again and since then I've loved it I've made quite a lot of friends from doing it I've you know made very good friends who've you know have come to my wedding and such because um, there is a whole community of genre film fans who are generally pretty cool people when you get to meet them I think it is, it is a, a good community that still exists within the blogging community certainly yes um, yes I think we only needed to, you even when you look at this project that we've obviously put mm -hmm. together, we've put together this 1001 list, um, mainly because the guys who did the 1001 movies to see before you die, I think they managed 150 for their cult film, uh, which with cult cinema, it sort of only touched the service. So obviously when compiling it, it was just a case of sending out emails like yourself mm -hmm. and other bloggers and the fact that it, the community came together and helped compile this list. Uh, which I don't like to say is essential. I prefer to call it as an introduction because the word essential tends to get you into disagreements with <laughs> what people class as being essential. Well, movie fans tend to be a little opinionated too. That never helps. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, the other that brings me on to my next point as a 
obviously a female blogger, especially in the horror community, do you find it a harder community to sort of break into than if you were another guy writing about horror films? No, I think there's probably in some ways, yeah, some ways, no. Uh, I find, especially when I first started blogging, there seems to actually be more female bloggers that I tend to find. Uh, It's not so true anymore. I think it's kind of probably half and half. The problem that kind of sometimes happens is I think a lot of female bloggers and especially female horror fans uh tend to feel as though they have that because there's something about oh when you're a female writing about horror you're going to get more attention because you seem like a rarity really i don't think we are i think there's so many female horror fans out there doing this but i think there are some females that then kind of feel like oh well now i can you know push the fact that i'm a woman and use that to you know really sell myself and i mean that's fine if you you know if you can uh, support it i guess um but i found ultimately it's become very gender neutral for me i think um you know occasionally if i'm writing the fact that i'm a woman is going to be a thing if i'm depending on the movie or depending on my opinion of it uh but i think um overall i don't think there's necessarily a sexism out there it occasionally pops up and usually it's shot down pretty quickly uh you know you see things out there but I've gotten far less, and I've never, ever had a comment on my blog of like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about because you're a woman, or anything to that extent, so. That's good to hear, so. Well, um, I guess it's the only place to go now. It's obviously into our feature discussion tonight. Uh, yeah. Which we've uh, chosen a film which is, I know is one of your personal favorites, and again, it is one of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Starship Troopers. <sighs> Would you like to know more? Um, Starship Troopers, if you're not in the know, it's a 1997 American American military science fiction action film, according to IMDb. <laughs> Fair, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure, we'll go with that. We won't just, just classify it as a sci-fi movie, we'll call it a military science action film. An American uh, military science fiction action film. <laughs> um, directed by um, that crazy dame, Paul Vernehoven. Yeah. Um, it is the story of three school friends who are signed up during the military in a sort of a future which is now where power is seen as the dominant force. Pacifism has been pretty much wiped out and it is all about, uh, about raw force being the dominant power. Uh, we basically follow these three friends as they go off into their various various threads of the uh, military. We've got young Rico who uh, goes off and joins the mobile infantry. We've got his girlfriend Carmen, who goes off to be a pilot, and then we've got his best friend, uh, Carl Jenkins, who's played by Neil Patrick Harris, who's probably now best off known for How I Met Your Mother, and he's going off to be a military bigwig and going off into intelligence. Uh, as we follow the three, they're caught up in the war between the Arachnids, who are a bug on bug sort of race on the planet of Klandafu, who, after launching a meteorite into uh, Earth and causing untold death sparks in the intergalactic war uh, as we now follow the three friends as they're all caught up in the war in their own way as we really see follow Johnny Rico as he progresses through the ranks and goes from a green marine to a grizzled war veteran um, okay Emily would you want to kick us off with this one 
Uh, sure. So the movie came out in 1997. Uh, I had the pleasure of seeing it in the theater. I was 15 at the time. And I remember sitting, you know, watching this movie. I think I saw it with my parents. Uh, leaving the theater and being like, fuck yeah, that was so good. Uh, I loved it. I thought it was funny. I thought um, it was also really gross and had great bug shootings. But I walked out thinking this is an amazing satire about war and society and war. And I remember even then at 15, I was a film nerd and reading all these reviews that were pretty negative to the film. The film... I don't know that it flopped, but it did not do well in the theaters, considering it was a very big-budgeted movie. Uh, and for years after, I remember people talking about Starship Troopers as if it was, oh yeah, that's that uh, stupid bug movie with all those like really dumb 90210 actors. And yeah. I, like, I am glad finally, I think, uh, the film finally has found its respect of anybody who watched the film saying, oh, no, it's... It is totally a satire, but it took a really long time for that to be common knowledge. And I still, you know, I remember um, telling somebody I work with to see it and they did. And like, I'm like, so what'd you think? And they were like, I don't know. I mean, like the acting was so bad and it still just boggles me because I think it is so brilliantly done and Verhoeven has made, uh, basically he makes an anti-war. He does the thing that, um, I think, was it Truffaut who said, like, you, you know, you can't make an anti-war film because the very nature of film, when you put war on film, it's going to look exciting. And what Verhoeven goes at it with, instead of making a war movie and preaching that war is bad, I am just going to play it straight-faced and make a war movie where the villains are so ridiculous and disgusting because they're <laughs> bugs, and our heroes are so beautiful and perfect, and... You know, and you're going to walk out of that movie and you're going to hopefully get that this is the way war is sold to people. Um, and most people didn't get that. So it did take a long time. I think it's the last couple of years, as you said, that people have now like saying, praising it as this amazing satire. And yep. I don't know if it's obviously the change in political climate that's obviously sparked people's opinion of this film and sort of changed it but um, certainly like yourself when it came out uh, again I was 15 over here in the UK it was released as a 15 um, huh. so with, with the it rating rated structure. R in the states which is about the equivalent you guys have one extra rating I think because um, yeah it was 15 which so you obviously could be 15 or over and again I went with my dad and uh, you go in and 15 rating it's, you get some violence but it's certainly not as strong as an 18 and within the first five minutes, we've got people being teared limb <laughs> yep. from limb. There's like extreme It's an ugly violence. planet. A bug planet. I love that opening. I'm so glad that you did that opening because I was I actually renewed my Netflix subscription just to rewatch this movie because I've misplaced yep. my VHS copy oh. somewhere. Oh, wait, wait. So you haven't watched it with the commentaries? I haven't watched it with the commentaries, no. Uh, do yourself a favor. Get it on DVD or Blu-ray. There are, uh, on the Blu-ray, there's two commentary tracks, one of which is Paul Verhoeven and the screenwriter, Edward Neumeier. Um, and that one's brilliant just because to hear them talk about it is fascinating. The other one I actually watched most of today is Paul Verhoeven with Casper Van Dien, Dina Meyer, and Neil Patrick Harris. And it's also really good because the it's really fun just to, again like it seemed like a pretty fun shoot the th the three actors are actually very fun to listen to talk but even even they got it i don't know if denise richards got it but the act the other actors got it 
Denise Richards, she didn't. She sort of sleepwalks her way through this film. Well, it's it's fascinating. I mean, we can jump into this because I think Denise Richards in this movie and how she's perceived um, is really fascinating for a few reasons. Uh, one is that I remember even me leaving the theater and hating her, thinking terrible actress, terrible character. Oh, I hate her. Uh, watching it, you know, as an adult now, 20 years later, whatever it is, what's fascinating is that I don't, I should not hate her at all. I do because I think Denise Richards is just a terrible actress and I, I don't think she's smart enough to make her playing it so blankly work. I hated but, her more the second time. I didn't hate her when I originally watched it. Um, I don't know if, if, obviously because she was, uh, she was still new and fresh faced at the time. So I don't know, maybe my teenage hormones were in overdrive or something there. I think I'm not, I'm not judging. But uh, yeah, this time it's sort of like, oh my god, I absolutely hate this character so much. Because you feel like most of the other actors get it. But the thing about Carmen is, watching it now, I'm like, Carmen's actually a great character. Because she, the whole thing about her is that she, Johnny, Johnny is so in love with her and is willing to go into the army for her. But she's like, look, I've wanted to be a pilot my whole life. This is my dream. I'm not going to give that up for you. I'm not going to pretend to be in love with you, and I'm not. Oh, I'm kind of attracted to this guy. Maybe I'll see where that goes. Like, she's actually a really modern woman. There's nothing wrong with a character, with a female character being interested in more than one man. But yet it's, and I don't know, and they talk about it a lot in the commentaries, how the test audiences after, like, the first uh, screening of this movie like we're like shouting like kill the bitch kill the slut about Denise Richards character and Paul Verhoeven says like he's like they never would have done that in Europe <laughs> like there's something really offensive to Americans about a female character who's so um uh not who's uh not promiscuous because it's not that but who's just open I guess but the problem still, and I want to just think, oh, it's because society just really can't handle that. But I think it's also that Denise Richards is really bad. I think the thing which annoyed me, especially about her, it's great, as you said, you point out the fact that she is a modern woman. She obviously switches from Johnny Rico to her uh, instructor, um, who, again, is as about as vacuous as she is. Yep. Um but when she does the breakup video, and it only now did I realize it the, when I watched it before we did this podcast, um, it looks like you're watching a telemarketing campaign. You watch Johnny Rico's video, and <laughs> he's there, and he's got his friends slapping their ass, and yep. God knows what else in the background. Has, she's filming one scene, and then it cuts to her walking to this view of these two planets and going, <laughs> look at this view. It's and it's like, guess. you have production values for your breakup video? <laughs> Well, that's something about the future of this movie that I really love, and it's something I never real caught until they talk about it in one of the commentary tracks, is the way, um, and again, it's very telling, because this movie's 97, the internet was around at the time, not quite as, you know, big as it is now, but uh, at what, when they break, when they separate, you know, and she says, like, oh, write me, and they never actually write, they send videos, like, that in this future, that is writing, like, there's no more culture in any way because of this you know kind of gung-ho war society but um yeah it's um oh, but Benahoven when he's approached films he always seems to have been with he's always sort of carried his style across whereas other directors uh, such as like John Woo they've adapted their style to become more sort of mainstream with Hollywood 
he never changed his style. And I um, love him for it. I think that's very clear when you look at the co-ed shower sequence, which, again, going back to my point earlier, when this was released in the UK, this is a 15. You don't get nudity in a 15. Mm-hmm. So, uh, first of all, we've got <laughs> gratuitous violence, and now we've got gratuitous nudity, which, obviously, when you're watching this with your dad, you don't know. Are you <laughs> supposed to be, like, celebrating this fact? Or are you supposed to be going, oh, no, that's that's shameful, all these naked... Like, people. I want to live in the future and shower with chicks. Yeah, um... But the interesting thing about that scene is that when they were shooting it, they actually dared Vernhoven um, and I think his production assistant to shoot it naked, yep. which he happily obliged to do. Well, if you've seen, especially his, not even just his earlier stuff, um, if you've seen quite a few Verhoeven, like Black Book, which was more recent, um, some of his stuff with Rudger Hauer, I can't remember the name of this movie. It's like Orange... Uh, it's a movie he did in like late seventies with Rudger Hauer and I mean, then even like basic instinct Verhoeven makes really sexy movies. And he also is very comfortable with sex and nudity on camera. I think he's comfortable with it in a way that, uh, I mean, it can't like sure in basic instinct, it's gratuitous that the nudity is a big part of the movie, but I think it's also because, well, of course that character would be nude at this moment. Yeah. And of course in this future where men and women are kind of considered on the same level and can go into mobile infantry and die together, of course they shower together. There's no more genderisms here. And so I think it makes perfect sense to have somebody who's very comfortable with nudity treat it the way he does in the movie. Oh, certainly. I mean, I've, I've not seen many of any of his uh, sort of Dutch films. Um, I've, so I haven't seen, obviously, like Soldier of Orange, which you mentioned. Oh, that's the uh, one, previously. yes. yes. Um, but I've seen his American films. So I've obviously grew up watching things like Robocop, uh, which, again, more gratuitous violence. And it's also the same writer as this one. Uh, yes, the writer actually turns up. Do you know when they have the uh, trial for the <laughs> yes. person put in death? That's the writer of the movie. I know, it's awesome. Um, when the film tanked, I don't know if they replicated that trial or not, but <laughs> that's for Well, you. they let him come back for Starship Troopers 3. Ed Neumeyer wrote and directed Starship Troopers 3, which is actually really worth watching. Skip 2. 2 is a straight-to-video, uh, doesn't understand what worked about this one and just makes it into an action movie. Yeah. But Starship Troopers 3 is actually the same kind of satirical bent, and it takes on religion. So if you're uh, interested in religion uh being kind of lampooned by the starship trippers universe then check out part three mm. i haven't as i said i've seen i've seen all the other ones uh obviously as you said starship troopers 2 it's more the enemy within uh mm-hmm. but obviously because it's made on a smaller budget they had to yep. like, scale it down starship troopers they, have 3, to, they had to reuse actors from the first one yeah. uh starship troopers 3 the first half i really enjoyed um and then when it's just based them walking along the beach i kind of got a bit bored Okay. Did you get to the? You finished it though, right? Yeah, yeah, I finished it. Okay. Because to me, like the final scene makes that movie worth watching. With the uh, huge bug. No, the like montage at the end, the the commercial at the very end of the movie. Uh, no, I'm gonna have to go back and refresh myself now. Okay. Because it is like the movie ends, and you're kind of almost like you feel like it kind of chickened out, but then it has this one final "Would you like to know more?" sequence Mm. that sort of puts the entire film in perspective but it's it is a it's one of those few series where they've actually developed it really well uh we've obviously had the animated fourth film which uh, i did not see 
It's all right. Uh, if you like Roughnecks, which was the spin-off series, um, which, you know, Starship Troopers for kids, <laughs> uh, which is, ba- is more based around the book than the film. Which I've also not read. Have you read um, The book's a lot more dry. It's not as much fun as this. Yeah, well, and the book is, to my understanding, the book is writing in a way that's kind of celebrating fascism and militarism. I know that uh, Venerhoven actually admits he didn't finish the book past the first chapter, so... uh... (laughs) Well, because I believe Robert Heinlein, a complicated guy, but I think um, Nazi sympathizer wouldn't be wrong to suggest about him is my understanding well there's a lot of iconography uh within it you've obviously got like the eagle standard within the badge of the mobile infantry mm-hmm. oh yeah um and obviously when you look at like the classroom sequence and you've got obviously all the pictures of all these um sort of figures on there i'm just trying to find my notes because i just put this down um yeah i mean well yeah and i mean verhoven grew up in uh he grew up with World War II. He yes. was, and Black Book is very much about not his experiences, but Black Book is his kind of way of really telling the story of his area during that time. Uh, so, I mean, this movie is, and Verhoeven talked a lot about it in the commentary that, yeah, this was his way of tell, making a war film and making it in such a way where it's you know so over the top that it should make you think. Something I didn't pick up on until very recently. Uh, our characters are from Buenos Aires, which yes. when you think Buenos Aires, you totally think Denise Richards and, uh, you know, um, Casper Van Dien. I, at first, I always just assumed it was kind of a joke because that's probably where they were in the book. So, but he's just going to cast really white actors in the parts. Casper uh, Van Dien, I think it was, actually brings it up in the commentary He's like, well, because he says the same thing. He's like, you know, I didn't understand why I was supposed to be from Buenos Aires. But then I thought about it and realized, oh, where did all the escaped Nazis go? Buenos Aires. So the idea being that maybe this whole generation of uh, really Caucasian Buenos Argentinians are all descendants of Nazis, which I like that idea quite a bit. It's... uh... Because I wasn't, again, I wasn't sure that was another thing carried over, um, carried over from the book, and they just sort of, sort of worked mm-hmm. it in, and then we all kind of accepted it. But and again, I never thought of, obviously, the way you've just brought it yeah, up. Yeah, that was the first time I thought about it was today with that commentary. Um, but I'm, I'm sure I remember reading that uh, because of, in the book, um, I think that Rico's actually is Hispanic in the book, mm-hmm. and that's why he's from Buenos Aires. Right. Um, Again, it's there's so many different sort of theories of what it could obviously be all mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but but as I said, this I love the idea that that uh, pacifism is now seen as weakness, yes. and that only by getting behind the government and joining the military do you become a citizen. Yep. When they got that opening uh, discussion when they're in uh, when they're in the classroom with Michael Ironside, who oh. is absolutely fantastic in this film. Well, the, the fact that this movie has Michael Ironside and Clancy Brown just means Paul Verhoeven really does love me, because those are two of my favorite actors and favorite weird crushes, and to have them both in this movie is just so great. It was a fanboy overload. I think oh. if you you know if Michael Ironside or Clancy Brown is in your movie, it just escalates it that way. It does, even if the points. rest of it's shit. They will. Pet Cemetery Two is a terrible movie, but damn it, Clancy Brown deserves an Oscar for what he does in that movie. I love Clancy Brown. His uh, the fact is that 
he is so believable in this this film that so that he would bust himself down. You know, if this was a yep. real life situation, he would bust himself down to private, and he would go and take on all the bugs by himself. And he would be the one that captures the brain bug. Um, because obviously, again, because he's a character actor like Michael Ironside, so when I see Clancy Brown, I just think of Highlander because I think he's the Krugan still. <laughs> um, and to maybe to a lesser extent as the um, televan- televangelist on John dies at the end. Which I have not seen yet. Oh, you're missing a treat there. I've been on like you forever, and I just keep not getting to it. Yeah, uh, John Dies at the End, really, really good. Uh, we might have to cover it on a, another edition. Mm-hmm. Um, but that whole opening sequence where Michael Ironside and he's like, oh, what would the founding fathers of Hiroshima have to say? And she's like, oh, they wouldn't have much to say because they were vaporized. <laughs> um, it's just, I just love this idea that by doing military service, you become a citizen, so you're deemed a worthy member of society so you get privileges such as you can have children you can yep. vote um you can go to harvard and have it paid on like the uh sort of yeah. uh, military well vote. and i guess you can run for office and the idea being then that all of the political leaders served in the military it, it and- is interesting when you actually look at um the mobile infantry you every single one of the characters represents a different aspect yes um, it's sort of like you've got the politician, you've got the one who wants the family, the one who wants to go off to college. Um, it's like funny how they all happen to be in the same group. Yeah. But um, Clancy Brown, again, is absolutely fantastic as the uh, drill instructor. Oh, so good. Uh, the fact that he's more than happy to brutalize his own cadets. Well, and that he's more like, than happy to throw a knife in Jake Busey's hand. Yes, Jake Busey, um, the son of Gary Busey. Which, I, I was at a horror convention a few years ago, and on the website it was supposed to be Jake Busey and Gary Busey there, and it was the saddest thing in the world, because I walked by the table at one point, and Gary Busey was not there. Jake Busey was there, and he had written and taped a sign on his booth that said, no, my dad's not here, stop asking. <laughs> uh, I can I never go to like conventions and actually uh, meet so people, because I hear so many like horror stories of like when people have met their uh, heroes oh, and they've yeah, just been like absolute jerks. Yeah. Or like what? when you go and you see like the soup Nazi guy from Seinfeld who wants like forty bucks for like a signed photo. <laughs> well, everybody, you know, they make a living. It's I go when I go. It's actually I generally go more to see my friends there than to see the celebrities. But I'll do it. Like I'll go, and if I see like somebody that I really respect and really would like to have two minutes to say I love I loved you in step up three like that kind of thing uh, so occasionally if you know if I see that there's somebody that I'm it's not gonna be a long line and I'm gonna be able to get that minute with them a lot of times it's it's worth it just because sometimes they're awesome Clint Howard super guy John Cassier great. Tom Savini is an asshole, and don't ever even <laughs> attempt to give him your money because he doesn't deserve it for how he treats fans at conventions. Yeah, I've, I've, I keep hearing that uh, Tom Savini's a jerk. So uh, yeah, I've I've never had an interest in giving him my money, but I have witnessed him just be awful at these kinds of things. So, so uh, yeah, um, in terms of obviously going back to uh, this film, obviously when we see like the the uh, boot camp sort of sequence, which I think is up there with the top five bootcamp sequences you ever it's shot. It's like deadly laser tag, of course it is. Because um, you've obviously got, like, you've got Full Metal Jacket, which is, like, the definitive boot camp mm-hmm. sort of sequence. Um, and then you've got, this would be, like, my close second. 
Um, just like I think we're, we're, he, the cadets arrived and it's like, which of you is going to knock me down? And it's sort of like, no, not to knock him down. He has to break their arm as well. <laughs> yeah, medic. Uh, and then he has like another one run around the bunker. And I thought it was, um, oh, who's the guy who played Robin in Batman? Chris O'Donnell. Uh, oh, 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 uh, uh, Chris O'Donnell. I thought it was Chris O'Donnell who he makes run around, but it isn't. It looks like Chris O'Donnell. I never thought about that. Um, is it um, some just no name actor who actually plays it? But the fact he has his assistant officer chasing him around, clubbing him on the legs. <laughs> so great. Um, and then obviously we have the return of Dizzy, uh, mm-hmm. played by Dina Myers. Mayer, sorry. Dina, I think is it just Meyer? Uh, Dina Meyer who surprisingly has actually done a lot because like a lot of people in this film I thought this was like the one film and they didn't really do anything apart from like Neil Patrick Harris mm-hmm. Denise Richards who obviously went off and did other things Neil there's Patrick Harris. a lot of a lot of the younger cast you'll see it like um the is it Seth Gillian who you meet at the very end of the film he's the young black cadet who's really gung-ho he was on the wire for years uh the uh Dina Meyer or Dina Meyer I don't however you say her name <laughs> She's she works quite a lot, and she's done a lot. She she was in a couple of the Saw films. She was had a long-standing arc on 90210, as did half of the cast of this movie. Yeah. Um, but she, I've always liked her because a she does do a lot of genre films. Um, she was in even the Piranha remake. She's in. Uh, I like her because I think she has she's very natural in films, and she seems like she physically really gives herself to movies. Like she always looks the part and this movie like she definitely you could tell like, she's yeah. muscular in this one she i believe that she would be you know in the mobile infantry in this movie as opposed to denise richards oh she is she is one of the toughest people in the mobile infantry i'm surprised that she doesn't get made the squad captain i mean obviously right. we yeah. we've got rico there so I'm, we're supposed to be rooting for him but uh right. if, if she it... not make it over uh Busey's son i don't get <laughs> Busey is, is uh five seconds of glory where he just basically fouls himself. <laughs> right. Well, you know, he can play the violin, though. He is the only person in this film who doesn't get promoted. Everyone else gets, like, these incredible promotions. Um, Gary, Jay Brucey as Ace Levy is still a private at the end of the film. Well, doesn't he kind of choose that, though? Because it isn't... I think I just... there's a scene where Rico even kind of offers him to be... After Rico gets promoted, doesn't he, like... Asked Jake Busey, and Jake Busey's like, "No, I had my chance. I'm." I think, like, I think yeah, he, kind of he offers him to he's... be his sergeant, but instead he gives it over to Dizzy. Right, but I think at some point Jake Busey has a line that kind of says, "I'm only meant to be a private. I don't have the capacity to do anything else." Which I think is also kind of a, a military thing of making a statement of like some of the guys that are just there to be one more body in a way. Yeah, it's uh, but no, Dizzy again is. She's uh, another strong female character, which is always good to see. Um, while What's they are obviously funny, though, is and I realized this a few years ago when I rewatched this for the nth time. In a way, she's actually far uh, less of a kind of modern feminist than Carmen, because if Rico goes into the military for Carmen, Dizzy kind of goes into the army for Rico. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and I think because Dina Meyer is really likable and the character still is good as a soldier, I think you can kind of not notice it so much. But there's something actually really 
in a way disappointing about the character as a feminist, I guess. And I still wonder if the, if the casting had been reversed, which I, and apparently on the commentary, Dina Meyer says she wanted to be Dizzy. Like she had that she was going to audition for Carmen and basically said, I think I'd be a better Dizzy that she found that character more interesting. But I think if Dina Meyer played Carmen, I think people would hate that character far less. Yeah. I think the thing with Dizzy, though, she is a more fun character. I mean, she gets to go down and kick ass and yeah. shack up with Rico. Yeah, she and... plays that crazy version of rugby handball. I'm still not sure what's supposed to be going on with that because are they? Because uh, Rico's doing like these incredible flips by, I don't know, superhuman ability, I'm supposed to believe, or something? Uh, superhuman stunt double ability, I guess. <laughs> so... Is that a thing in the future? Because um, obviously we see him play the he wins, because he being the old American boy, he wins the final uh, game of their school yep. career, um, and obviously gets to get the highest going score and that. And it's interesting the fact that they break Rico down um, is in the fact that he loses his girlfriend, his family are killed off, yep, and he's just like builds himself back up to this sort of hardened military leader by the end of the film. Yes. Um, obviously. Once we obviously, when we were talking about obviously the action sequences, isn't it? Do you think that the actions sort of overblown to sort of take away sort of like the horror of war? Um, or do you think it's just Verhoeven style? I mean, obviously, we look at films like Torico and Robocop where the gore is so overblown. And again, it is overblown here. It's just limbs flying, there's people gored through by aliens and brains sucked out. Yeah, well, I think because of the nature of how he's telling the story, uh, because, I mean, you think of war films, and it is, it's that tricky balance between making a war film that makes war look uh, awful or making a war film where you're cheering for someone. And it's yeah. hard not to ever watch any movie and not do that. But I think I think he makes the right choice because it it is so over the top that it's more gross than you're never really feeling, because I don't think you're really supposed to be feeling, um, oh God, these poor soldiers, because part of it too is you have no way of feeling that for the other side. The enemy is so nameless and faceless because they're just bugs that at the same time though, I think there's kind of something like at one point they kind of say something to where like, we actually are on their planet. So why are, so we're invading them kind of thing. Uh, I mean, I think the over-the-topness is also it's the way he sells the film is I'm telling an anti-war story with a genre that is never used for this. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it is because obviously because it's not a horror of war story. It's, it's sort of like a boy's own sort of venture. It's, it's sort of film that you would class with alongside the likes of uh, Where Eagles Dare, The Guns Never Own. It's that sort of war film. Um, and I don't know, with the sort of gore elements, I mean, it's this him trying to acknowledge that war is sort of bloody and that, you know, people die in that or. I, yeah, I would say because it's, I because part of it too, I think a big statement it's making is how we send people to war and how we send young people to die and, you know, tell them that they're doing it for their country, that this is the best thing that they could possibly be doing as a, you know, as an American or as whatever country it is. And so then to see, okay, and now here you all are, here's 30,000 of you that have landed on, on this planet. Uh, here's, you know, and I think he even says, like, 
that oh, that when they land in that big first battle, it was him kind of referencing Normandy. And yeah, you send in troop after troop knowing they're going to die, they're going to die, they're going to die until someone gets through to where they need to get through. Yeah. And you need that just mass death to kind of remind you what war is, which is you have the bureaucrats who are fighting it with paperwork and with decisions, and then you have all of the young people who are going in and actually dying in really terrible ways in this case. Yeah. I mean, same when you look at the propaganda films, which for me are the real highlights of this whole film. Oh, yeah. Would you like to know more? Um, and you've got like the kids stomping on the cockroaches and it's yes. like, oh, doing we're doing part. our part. And <laughs> you, I think the best bit is when you've got the uh, troopers there and they give guns and live ammunition to school yep. children. And the kids are fighting over it and the, you know, soldiers are smiling. And yeah, it's very much, I think, as far as the movie goes, I think the, if I had to boil it down to what is this movie about, I think it really is about how we sell war to, you know, the generation that has to physically fight it. Well, it's, again, it's, they sell it as that, uh, obviously, the Air Forces, there were this invincible fighting force. I mean, when they have the initial invasion, it's countdown to victory. Right. Uh, not countdown to we're all massacred. Yep. Um, and again, with the bugs, uh, with their whole, their shoot, obviously, knocking asteroids into Earth, do you feel that the bugs actually are doing this intentionally? I mean, do they have some sort of sort of plan to conquer Earth, or we just sort of, like, happen to be in the way? I think it... I'm trying to remember, because I feel... I'm trying to separate what I feel like I've heard said about the movie to just when you watch it without any of the any of that in your head. And I might be misremembering something, because I feel like there is a scene or a line here or there that kind of suggests we invaded them first. I might be wrong about that, but I think it's very telling if that is true. But even around that, we do, in the movie, it most of it's being fought on their planets. So even if, uh, you know, they did bomb Buenos Aires, whether they did or not, whether they did intentionally. I mean, we see later that they are smart, that there is an intelligence to them. Uh, part of the, I think that's, and that's another, I think, kind of little satirical jab in the film. There's one of those, like, talking heads where you have two uh, intellectuals arguing about whether the bugs are smart. And, to the, you know, and it's that same, I think you see the same thing with the way people feel about terrorists, is you want to, um, you know, they kind of want to sell terrorists as mindless savages. But then if you do that, it makes whoever, the people that, you know, your side, let's just say, you know, I'm an American, so I'll just use that analogy of, you know, the people that did 9-11 were uh, just monsters. Except then to say that, it makes, well, it kind of makes America look kind of dumb for not having been able to deal with that. Yeah. And I think that's part of it, too, is that um, you have the uh, bureaucrats who will not acknowledge that their enemy has any any um, re- any reason for fighting on their end or and like there's there's that it's so much easier to fight a war if you can't see the other side. And when there are bugs that don't communicate, well, then, you know, of course, we can just step on them. 
it seemed to be obviously with the fact that we're going against um, an alien race we consider to be primitive in this film, uh, who obviously turn out not to be because they've got their own sort of organization structure. Um, that in a way it seems like there's been comparisons drawn. I'm guessing more towards Vietnam because of the time the book was written. But obviously now when we look at uh, like the war in Afghanistan, where we've obviously gone in with this idea because we're sort of from a more developed society. And then we've got all this expensive equipment that is we're just going to roll in and take over, and we're going to be this old conquering force, which right. And they, well, there's a mention too of um, the I think they're Mormons. They mention a um, what do you call it? Uh, what do you call it when a religious group goes to another country to crusade? Not necessarily a crusade. More um, they mention how they they find one of the planets where there's just a whole missionaries missionaries right that there are missionaries going to a bug planet to, you know, convert the bugs. And it's the exact idea of, well, who the F are you to go put your religion, your, you know, it's imperialism. And in this case, it's religious imperialism. Yeah. That that's one more aspect of something that we're doing. The bugs aren't doing that. I really want to know how they thought that plan was going to work. I mean, do you just like knock on the cave of like, the, the bugs and it's sort of like we've come you hand to talk them to the you about <laughs> yeah it's sort of like how am I supposed to read this I don't have hands <laughs> right yeah <laughs> um, I have eight like, eyes which one do I focus on yeah, it's sort of like it's sort of like they thought that they could uh, they could turn them they were wrong right I want it's that just movie butchered everywhere maybe that'll be the next sequel but um, no I mean certainly again when you like look at things like Roughnecks which is the series which spawned off um as we were saying earlier it's uh starship troopers but for kids um they look at a lot of different aspects they look at things like robot troopers there's different sort of bugs that come in and there's more sort of an in-depth look at how the how the um arachnids sort of work and how they sort of move about from planet to planet which okay. obviously isn't coming in this one because we've only got you know so much runtime to get your ideas down on right um but i mean do you feel that the sort of sequels add to it or do you think they take away and this is from this film or do you prefer just to see it as like a single entity? Um, I mean, I, I think the third one adds to it because I think the third one being also from the mind of Ed Newmeyer. So I think the third one, you have a very clear thematic and tonal continuation. And I, and I also kind of feel like Starship Troopers is about the, government uh selling war and starship troopers 3 is about religion selling itself and in this case selling war and everything else um part two to me and i I only saw part two once and at this point it's probably been about 10 years ago so i recall it just being a very straight action movie and i think if they had kept making those movies i think that would have hurt the first film a little bit because it would have then felt like Oh yeah, that's the fran. It's and it's any franchise where the first film is so much better than everything that comes after it. Yeah, it ends up kind of um, bringing that first one down sometimes. So I think if they had kept going that route and just because it's very easy. I mean, I'm surprised they haven't done more straight to video, um, like Universal Soldier. Like, why not? You have a property. You have so many different stories you can tell in this universe. Sure, make a quick action movie. Film it in like. Uh, you know, Romania, wherever you can film cheap and, you know, knock it out, put it on DVD, uh, film three of them at a time. Yeah. I, I'm That's glad... That's the other per-in way of filmmaking to exactly, film yeah. three, three films at once. Right, right. Get, get Dolph Lundgren in a few of them. 
Uh, I'm really glad they didn't do that because I, and I think the third one to me really does pull it back of giving you that intellectual look at it. I mean, I would love to have more. I was devastated in 1997 when this film bombed because I really wanted a sequel right away. Uh, you know, in fairness, it's probably best that in a way that happened because I think it let this movie be a cult movie. Yeah. It's one of those bizarre cult movies because it was made for, you know, what, $60 million or whatever it was at the time. But it is it is a big budget cult movie. I didn't know because at the time, obviously, when it was released, I don't think I was concerned with how much films were making and how mm-hmm. that affected, obviously, how sequels came out. I just saw obviously a film came out and then if another one came out it was gravy um and obviously when this film came out it then soon very much became the film that everyone in school was talking about mainly because it's a 15 and you're seeing stuff that you should only see in a 15 <laughs> it's all because get away with it let's face it <laughs> um you didn't have to like uh i think in the states you can go and see restricts if you take a grown-up or a homeless person with you or something i think that's how it works is that right uh, it, if they, if the ticket checkers actually check then yes yeah, okay um, and obviously, it very much became that if you were having friends over, that you would you would uh, have takeout and you would watch Starship Troopers. Nice. And it was there were normally one or two of you who probably got more open-minded parents um, who got you the video, and you would pass it around your friends, and it would became very much this cult movie, the very much the same way that Aliens did. Mm-hmm. Uh, which again, oh, yeah, and it's a perfect double viewing too. Uh, yeah, again, Aliens is uh, the Vietnam War in space, so yep. very easy to compare the two. Um, and as I said, it, it is, it's wonderful on its own, and it's only added to by the films and the series that came after it. Um, and I think it's nice the fact that it has hold, held up, and people are obviously starting to go back and look at it. Um, and you know what holds up, too? The CGI holds up really well. It does. There is some actual physical models uh, that they oh, yeah. use production. Um, but the, the, I mean, all the bugs are computers, and yeah. I mean, most of the time, the you know these young actors who most of them whom hadn't done much movies are interacting with nothing. But all of those bugs are CGI, and they look really good in 2014, and better than many films made in 2005 and after. I think the thing because we when we do CGI, we tend to have the uh, tendency to just do it so cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with, with Japanese films and sort of a lot of the Asian films, if they do CGI, they, they go all out. Uh, you look at a film like Kishen, uh, which is about 95% CGI, all the backgrounds, a lot of the characters and that are CGI, um, and it looks absolutely stunning. Um, and you obviously look at fil- other films from like Hollywood and that from the era, and it hasn't dated well. I mean, you look at... Look at uh, the Phantom Menace, yeah. Phantom Menace, I'm thinking more uh, how Reptile looks absolutely wretched now in Mortal Kombat. Uh, Lawnmower oh. Man is embarrassing. But um, it yeah. is, as I said, it's uh, it's good. And I mean, it's a shame Werner Hoven didn't return to any of the sequels. As he tends to not do with any of his franchise. He didn't do with, um, obviously, Showgirls, which apparently had a sequel. Sort of, yeah. I haven't um, watched that, but yeah, it's out there. Basic uh, Instinct he didn't return to. Um, thank God. Did you see Basic Instinct 2? I didn't see Basic Instinct 2, but I knew it was going to be awful. So. You know, I love bad movies. I love, like, if a movie, like, I just watched my soul to take, and I wrote probably 2,000 words on it. Like, if a movie's hated, I'm like, I'm going to find something to enjoy about it. There is so little to enjoy about Basic Instinct 2. It's just boring. 
I think that's the that's where we we show sort of like the critical um, opinion, sort of like the penny in the pile of poo sort of technique, where we focus <laughs> on that one good bit, yep. and like everything else can be just absolute garbage. But this bit was rather good. But there's nothing like that in Basic Instinct too. Oh, it's it's, it's I do I was like watching it, it's like um, I don't want, it's not Sharon Osbourne, is it? <laughs> I definitely want to see her again. <laughs> that would have been interesting, Sharon Stone. And you know who it is? It's the um, forget the actor's name but it he ruined the walking dead for me because it's the actor who played the governor in walking dead who i hated so much from basic instinct so when he showed up on walking dead i'm like great now i get to hate him here too and he's awful on both you see i always confuse him with the uh guy who's in um life on mars i I don't know he just plays plays the same same role and everything um obviously if you know put it in the comment section below and educate us all yes uh, but basically, he plays the same role and everything. And I thought he was pretty much the same, the same guy <laughs> in Basic Instinct too, which was another reason to watch it, other than the fact Sharon Stone's far too old and just looking out for a p- paycheck. I mean, she looks good naked. I'm not arguing with that. But the movie's does just... she? <laughs> I'll take your yeah, word I mean, for it. That, especially like, and apparently when she like decided to do the movie, she first like got naked and had a bunch of friends come over and was like, "Can I do this? Can I do this?" They were like, "Yeah, you look fine." And she looks good, but oh god, that movie. But um, yeah, a lot of people bash RoboCop too, but I enjoyed it. The Robo, the RoboCop or RoboCop Two? RoboCop Two. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I love RoboCop Two. I know people bash it and they say it's not as good as Werner Holmes original, but I like it. So mm-hmm. I think it's the one film if we're talking about Werner Holmes sequels that uh, obviously that don't fall into the pattern of the others of being awful. Uh, RoboCop Two would be my exception to the rule. Um, but anything else uh, you want to so they feel that we should discuss about uh, this one before we wrap this one up? Um, I mean, I think we've done a pretty good job of explaining to the world why this movie is so effing good, uh, why it was a travesty that common sense didn't tell you this was a satire. But uh, then again, we're dealing with society still thinks that eight American Pie movies is not enough. That's a good point. That's a very um, I mean, who keeps giving money to Noel Clark to make movies? Yeah. Oh. It, it, it is... It, I guess... It's, again, it's not... A, this movie exists. I'm so happy that it's out there. The DVDs and the Blu-rays are loaded with special features, including, oddly enough, Denise Richards' screen test, where she's so much more <laughs> dynamic and engaging. Like, we watched... My, my husband and I, like... Because I had, he had never seen this movie. When I showed it to him... It was like this moment of a mic, because this was way back when we early in the early stages of a dating, and it was kind of a deal breaker. I'm not, I'm not gonna so lie. This is, he didn't this like is the movie. relationship test. Yeah, I would like, not like have married him if, if he didn't like it. Um, but we always do. We we now have a joke where we do the Denise Richards voice, which is we just kind of a, a picture her filming this movie, and just anytime like. Because she has this, like, smile on her face the whole movie. So in our minds, just the entire movie, she's like, Paul, am I supposed to stand here now, Paul? Uh, But in her screen test, she's actually really engaging. And she's not the Denise Richards in the movie. So that's weird. Maybe she was on Painkillers for the movie. I don't know. I don't know. I think yeah. this is this is a good relationship test. You know that you've met that special person, oh, yeah. and if they can appreciate Starship Troopers, oh, it's a deal breaker. If somebody, um, if do not marry somebody who doesn't get Starship Troopers because they're kind of an idiot. I have a I have a similar uh, similar test, but I do Godzilla movies. 
Ooh, okay. If, I, if I'm dating anyone and they don't appreciate Godzilla or they like turn up and go, oh, you like those movies? It's like, oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I'm not well, much of a identifier. Like you, yeah. Um, which is obviously when my wife, um, I, when she, the first time she stayed over at my apartment, um, I put on Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah and I was watching that, well, not wanting to obviously wake her up. And she comes out and she's like, what are you watching? I was like, oh, I'm watching Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, respect. And she was like, oh, really? This is pretty cool. And I was like, obviously Meta Keeper. Yep, yep. And you, you propose the next day. So, uh, yeah, that was it. That was, that was it. That it was, was it. like, right, we're moving everything into my apartment. <laughs> it's the size of a shoebox and you've come in from a full house, but we're crammed in there. You're not All right, it's a way to do it. But, um, yeah. Okay, further viewing. Where would you, if you like this movie, what else would you recommend to people? Okay, um, hmm. Well, definitely Starship Troopers 3. I think you can completely skip two, but I think three uh, has the same tone, same writer. Um, a lot of other Verhoeven as well. Robocop, definitely. Again, Robocop is also the same writer, so you have that good teamwork thing going. Uh, Total Recall and this movie, to me, go very well together. Also, you have a lot of the same cast. You get more Michael Ironside, which is always good. Yes. Um, and then separate from just the kind of same universe of actors and, and behind the camera, um, I was trying to think about this, and I couldn't come up with any good kind of satirical war movies. But if you like big bug movies, I would recommend a little uh, horror comedy that came out a few years ago called Infestation. All right, that's yeah, that's uh, one that I've not had anyone else mention. So good. It's um, it was on Instant Watch on Netflix. It's it might be over by you. I'm not sure. Uh, it's oh, on, on Netflix, air, it pops it? up on the Sci-Fi Channel a lot. Over at least when I'm flipping around. Yeah. It's just a good killer big bug movie, and it's pretty funny, and it has Ray Wise, which always elevates things as well. He's no Clancy Brown, but still. <laughs> no Clancy Brown. Who is? <laughs> Who, nobody. Michael Ironside and Clancy Brown. I don't make me choose between them. Well, you know Clancy Brown's in uh, SpongeBob SquarePants now. Yes. Uh, there's a. Have you seen the documentary? I know that voice. Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, good documentary. It is called I Know That Voice. Uh, again, in the states, it's on Netflix Instant. It is just a documentary about voiceover acting. Okay. Uh, Clancy Brown is interviewed. Uh, Everybody is interviewed that does a lot of voiceover work, and it's really fun to watch and hear them talk about. So, cool. Um, for me, the only film that I've been of that you've not mentioned already would obviously be Aliens. Yes. Uh, if you, as you said before, is a great double bill to watch with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's if you're obviously going to you enjoy watching one movie with people uh, slaughtering a. Uh, alien races and this is another, another good comparison so and it's, as you say that too i would say something verhoven and james cameron have in common too is they both really like strong kick-ass women they do um and most of their catalogs you're always going to have really strong and especially in verhoven's case really interesting female characters well james cameron's got the uh, human chameleon jeanette goldstein oh gosh yes um who we all remember as vasquez Mm-hmm. Um, he also has Colette Hiller, who um, who I would love to go on this podcast, but I don't know if it's going to happen because she's kind of dropped off the radar. Who is uh, Sergeant uh, Farrow, the dropship pilot? Gotcha. Uh, she didn't 
get to have as many kick-ass moments, but she's just sheer presence alone is just awesome. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, Jeanette Goldstein, it's amazing the film she turns up in. She's so great. She's in Titanic as the woman uh, singing the lullaby to the children. I completely forgot that that was her, yeah. Um, she's the maid in Fair Love in Las Vegas. Yep. She is um, the um, foster mother in Terminator, Terminator 2. It. Exactly. So... Uh, we could probably just make a game of what... You could do a podcast just about uh, about her movies. We see, we're just writing the future episodes as we go here. Uh, hey, hey. We're sorted Why not? <laughs> the next 50 episodes, we're just completely sorted. Just, just go just through our IMDb well. list, one movie at a time. So, but yeah, that's, uh, I think, I think we have pretty much exhausted Starship Troopers. If you haven't seen it, uh, definitely go and watch it. Absolutely. Um, I know it's on your letterboxes in your top five. Oh, yeah. It is It is my number four movie of all time for me. Um, I've not put it on mine. I've got... I unfortunately had to omit it for other things on there, so mm-hmm. shame on me. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's a hard... Do you have, like, your definitive ranking of your favorite movies? <sighs> I have, so like, hard. a rotating top 50. Yeah. Um... There's certain films which are always are at the top. Things like Destroyer Monsters, Freaks is always at the top. Uh, Clockwork Orange, Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. Kill Bill 1. Uh, there's certain films which always are at the top. Um, and then there's got the others which sort of shift around in places as and sort of my mood towards directors change and stuff. Yeah, my top five stay very tight and then six to ten rotate, like the order switches a bit. But yeah, I hear you. Cool. Right. Um... Right, well, on to our final section of the podcast tonight, which we're calling What's in the Box? What's in the Box? Thank you. Oh, God. <laughs> no. What's in the Box? Um, where we're inviting, where each week I'm going to, well, each edition, should I say, I'm going to be inviting our guests to promote uh, something of interest to themselves. Um, and uh, this week, Emily, if you got something for us? Um, sure, I have a recommendation of a movie that I think more people need to revisit. Okay. Does that work? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Um, recently, uh, my husband is a very big fan of this movie. I had not watched it since VHS, 1993 or 4 or so. Um, but we sat down and watched it. We actually recorded a podcast for another podcast on it. Um, so I can promote them as well. And the movie was Dr. Giggles. Okay. Now, um, what's your experience? I've heard of it, but I haven't actually seen it. So, Dr. Giggles was 1992. It was a theatrical horror release. Larry Drake plays a, you know, mad slashing doctor. Um, and 1992 was a weird time for horror movies. Uh, the slasher craze had died. There was no real definitive style of early 90s horror, I don't think. Um, and this movie comes out, this movie, it is a horror comedy. It is completely a comedy. It follows all the beats of a slasher, but is joking the entire time. It's really funny. It's really clever. It's really well made. And I don't think anybody got it when it came out. When it came out, I think everybody treated it like a bad horror movie. Yeah. Uh, the director did not make any he mostly works in tv and i don't think he made any more theatrical releases and it's just a shame that years later you'd have scream and then you know everybody could joke about horror this movie came out at a time when people just didn't get that you could do that yet um and it's really an enjoyable watch so i'm pushing dr giggles it is on dvd it's out there um and 
if you want to hear us talk more about Dr. Giggles, there's a podcast that um, I listen to quite a bit called Married with Clickers. And it's a husband and wife podcast. And for October, they had other people also record episodes on different horror movies. So we did the Dr. Giggles episode that will come out very soon if it's not already out by now. So. Um, right, uh, we're in my own box this week. Um, I'm bringing the a film which has been kicking around the sort of Kickstarter campaign circuit at the moment. Uh, it's a film called Mermaid Down. Uh, basically, it's another horror film in which a mermaid is ripped from the Pacific and has her tail brutally hacked off by a fisherman's axe Aww. before she is thrown into a mental home for disturbed women, uh, where, of course, no one believes that she is actually a mermaid. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as I said, it's an intriguing concept, um, and obviously one that I'm really glad actually made its target funding, because I would love to see more, because sure. if you go on uh, the site, I will put the link on the bottom, uh, you can actually see the sizzle reel, as they call it, uh, which has got some absolutely great footage on there, and it does make it seem like it's going to be a very dark um, sort of horror, and... It's a little frustrating because the only sort of praise that it gets, it pops up these little quotes uh, from the screenwriting competition that it was t- was taken from. Mm-hmm. Um, and the it's directed by Jeffrey Grillman, who is a first-time director, and it's co-written by a clinical psychologist by the name of Dr. Kelly Lauren Baker, uh, which adds a air of authenticity to it. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but when they're doing, the, obviously, the reel to it, and I don't want to, obviously, take anything away from the film, but I have to say that Grillman does not come off as the most exciting filmmaker. <laughs> he, um, he he's seems, no Paul Verhoeven, is what you're saying? No, he doesn't. he's not excited. He's not, like, leaping around and making scary faces or anything like... If you watch uh, any of the making of footage for a Starship Troopers special, you get to watch. Um, see how he does the brain bug, especially using a broom. That's pretty inspired. <laughs> oh, yeah, and Starship Troopers apparently... They didn't have giant bugs to chase them. Paul Verhoeven would, like, pick up a boom mic and chase them and try to, like, scream at them. As that, that's how he got the performances. See, that's, that's what we like. We like that, mm-hmm. that hands-on style of filmmaking. Um, and, again, uh, Dr. Baker does a lot of the sort of talking on it. And she seems to be on the impression that the only mermaid movies that have come out are sort of like the cute and cuddly mermaid movies, like The Little Mermaid <laughs> and Splash. Um, there's no mention of like the Odyssey. Um, there's no mention of the likes of She Creature, which is the only other mermaid horror film I could think of. I don't know if you can think of any other, Emily. Uh, well, there's a merman in Cabin in the Woods. There is, um, which he's so desperate to see, and I'm sure he probably didn't want to see by the end of that film. Oh, <laughs> at least he uh, got to see him. Cabin in the Woods, that's a film for another podcast, and oh, I'm sure it is on the list. Uh, another film which if you haven't seen it go and see it mm-hmm, Certainly. Um, again the film is looking like it's going to be very dark it's not going to be a big action film it's going to be very sort of more sort of a psychological horror um, and don't ask me the, I'm still not sure the logistics of you chop off a mermaid's tail and she still has her legs um, I'm not sure how that's going to actually work but just from the reel alone, it does look like it's going to be interesting. I it's a great sh- premise, and it's a, it's a very fresh premise, too. It is. I think we've overworked vampires. We've certainly yep. overworked zombies. Yes. Um, I don't... I mean, what sort of subgenre can we be doing? I mean, slashes, again, are overdone. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, find a new monster, find a new... And I mean, based on that premise, too, it sounds almost like there's something really... Uh, that, like you said, there's a psychologist on writing staff and that she's sent to an asylum. Seems like there could be a lot of, like, female hysteria aspect played into it. So it sounds very promising, I'd say. So, uh, but no, it's um, it's certainly, as I said, it'd be nice to see another mermaid horror film. Sure. Um, obviously, we've got Kevin the Woods had a merman. Uh, we had a she creature, which again was a killer mermaid, uh, which was fun. But um, as I said, I think it is a. It'd be nice to have something a bit more fresh because the horror sort of genre. I think with more sort of stigma around straight to DVD being now taken away, mm-hmm. um, oh, the market's become way too flooded. Um, and the sentence, it's sad to see that even though the market's been flooded, the certain sort of subgenres still not been touched. We've not really had many werewolf movies, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've not really had many witch movies. Yep. Um, I think what's the last sort of witch movie in note, I would say, would be The Craft. Yeah, uh, well, Lords of Salem was pretty uh, witchy. Again, it's it was a lot of things. <laughs> Rob Zombie's he's I, I know Udo Kier's now refusing to work with Rob Zombie because he shoots so much footage, oh, and then has to like edit it down. Out. That's why yeah. he's also confused. Um, and that was obviously the problem with House of a Thousand Corpses, which oh, was him yeah. just being overexcited. And then obviously did Devil's Rejects, which was more focused and a lot more fun. Uh, I think more so on the second time when I knew what he was sort of aiming for, he wasn't like trying to aim for that. So sort of everything's not black and white. Uh, it's sort of more shades of grey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, was, I, I appreciated the uh, ambition in Lords of Salem. <laughs> and I, I didn't hate it. I, and I really didn't hate Sherry Moon Zombie in it. I feel like everybody just used her as a punching bag. But I didn't think she was the problem in that movie. I mean, what did you think of his Halloween? Uh, well, <laughs> okay. I'm going to talk about it in an upcoming... Lambcast, we're doing the Halloween franchise. So, Ooh, okay, I'll I'll give my uh, my two cents. I I like that he was okay. He was taxed with remake Halloween. I really like that he tried to do something different, and then he had forty minutes left, and then he just did a greatest hits of the first film. So I didn't particularly like Halloween. I. I won't say I liked the first hour because it was kind of miserable to sit through because it's just unpleasant, but I appreciate what he tried to do. Uh, Halloween 2, I think, is a fascinating, fascinating bad movie. Yeah. I went to see it in the movie. I remember I went, I actually, we snuck into it. I had seen Final Destination 4 and we were drinking during that movie. And then we snuck into Halloween 2, and I was in, like, such a good mood. I'd just seen Final Destination 4. I'm all happy. I still have some of my, like, Snapple and vodka left. And, like, ten minutes into it, I remember looking at my friend Erica, and we were like, this is not going to be good, and my alcohol's getting warm. This is going to be really, really a painful two hours. And I have, I think that movie ended. I have a theory that it, uh, there was a different killer. I don't think Michael Myers existed in that movie. I think it was all in Laurie's head. But the movie isn't doesn't ever try to do that. I've seen the extended cut, and it makes just as little sense. Um, it is just it's like an aggressively bad movie where I yeah. think he was almost trying to make a bad movie to a certain extent. Where I think he didn't want to make any more, so he figured I'm just going to make it as like ridiculous as I can. He's always been sort of like the fact that. If I don't make it, someone else is gonna make it. And that's kind of what I feel like he he felt with that movie. 
But there was still a way to do something with it that wasn't that. Yeah, it's... um. I mean, the the commentary, again, Rob Zombie's commentary is absolutely brilliant. If you get into this, make sure you listen to the commentary. The Halloween one especially, because when he's talking about the kid, uh, the young Michael Myers bludgeoning the uh, kid with the log, Mm -hmm. he's like, oh yeah, nice kid. No coordination, but nice kid. (laughs) Nice. But um, he is such a light guy. He's so so lighthearted and like such a fun guy. Um, And obviously you see him as his musical career. Um, and obviously you see the films he's making and again like Clive Bark you realise that this is sort of his therapy and that he doesn't need to be dark in real life because he gets all his darkness right. out on through his art um, and that leaves him free to just be you know Mr. Joe Cool Blog yeah and it's and I, I like those kind of directors because I think that's kind of like what I would be like like I love horror movies but I'm, I'm a pretty sunny person in real life and I I like when you can get that from filmmakers. Yeah. And he seems to, you know, he seems to have a good relationship with his actors. Uh, Brad Dorif and Daniel Harris in Halloween 2 are so good. And they're in their own movie, and all of their scenes are fantastic, and I care, and it's important and emotional. And then the rest is just poop being thrown at me. <laughs> it's, it's a weird, weird thing, and I... I would love in, like, ten years when he's completely, like, when that's totally behind him, for him to really talk about what went down on that movie. I think it's, uh... Has has he got anything on the director's slate coming up, or has he just gone back to his music now? I don't know. I feel like it's gone back and forth with him, like, he was going to remake The Blob at one point, and that fell through. Uh, It seems to keep going back. He'll direct more. I'm sure he will. And I think he still has good movies in him. I'm, I'm rooting for the guy. I am. Cool. Right. Well, that uh, just about wraps up uh, this premiere edition of the podcast. Um, I'd like to say thank you again to Emily for coming along and joining me this evening to record Thank you for having me. Um, hopefully we'll get you back on for a future edition if you sure. want to come back. I'm around. We'll put on a spread, put some sandwiches out. That'd be That's good. Nice. Put some, uh, invite some Clancy Brown over, you know, have a party. Good. Um... But again, thank you for listening, and until next time, keep it strange. I'm on my heart to a